What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, January 14th, 2022, the second Friday of the year, man. We're going to be here for another 50 more Fridays after this. So hopefully you guys stick around uh, for that. At some point this year, we're going to hit uh, probably at some point in the middle of the year, it's going to be 100 happy hours. That's that's kind of wild to think about, man. So thank you all for, for being here. A couple of announcements. Hopefully you got a chance to tune in to the episode that was released today with the one and only data whisperer, Scott Taylor, his second time on the podcast. Uh, it was a great, great conversation. We just talked about we talked about him, where he grew up, and, and you know, like his, his origin story is, is a great conversation. So do tune into that. Hopefully you got a chance to join me for the Comet Office Hours. You know, we've been revamping that thing, uh, working real hard at making it, uh, making it as amazing as it possibly can. Uh, earlier this week on Wednesday, we talked real quick about um, pretty much how to uh, translate, um, you know, a machine learning problem into a, a, a rather business problem to machine learning problem. Uh, this week coming up on Wednesday, we're going to talk about baselines and the importance of baselines. We also got a community member that's going to be joining us for a uh, interview and a panel type of discussion. Well, it's just us chatting, but hope you guys can make it there. All of your questions will be welcome. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, what else in other news? Uh, not much, man. Just, just, just here. Happy to be here. Happy to make it happen. Shout out to everybody in the building. Uh, Russell, Vin, Eric S, Eric G, Al Bellamy is in the building. Albert Bellamy, and of course, Serge. Serge, thank you so much for sending me a copy of the book. I've got it sitting uh, right there. I'm excited to dig into it. Uh, and you know, we'll we'll bring you onto the podcast at some point. Uh, you know, maybe early springtime to to chat. Um, taking a break from recording live episodes for a while. Uh, also coming up this week, um, I'll be presenting at ODSC on the 18th. So that's Tuesday, January 18th, 2022, uh, talking about um, ML system design for continuous experimentation. So definitely check that out if you can. Um, yeah, that's going, going live all over the place. And then also the following week, uh, the 26th and 27th, um, well, the 26th is a Wednesday, so that'll be the office hour sessions. But later in the day, we're doing a webinar with Pachyderm, a joint webinar. So definitely tune into that. And then the following day on the 27th, doing another presentation, uh, Lessons from the Field for Building Your ML Ops Strategy. This one's going to be uh, hosted by Cognolytica. So check that out. I'll be posting about that on LinkedIn uh, throughout the week so you guys can register for that and join us shout out to everybody joining on linkedin if you got questions please do let me know if you're watching and you know if you're just enjoying what you're seeing on the screen go ahead and smash a reaction give me a like give me a, give me a heart clap or something um let's kick it off with any questions man I, I didn't come prepared with a question this time uh so if anybody wants to kick something off please do let me know uh i'm i'm uh, I'm all ears because uh, I'm super unprepared today. I'll throw something out there. Yeah, please do. So, yeah, so I I want I was curious to know if any of you have done anything with uh, media mix modeling. Uh, I'm just trying to. I've kind of heard a little bit about it, listened to a podcast or two, and just wondering what your experience is or how you would kind of explain it. I'm I'm starting to get a better idea of what it is, and um, and I'm trying to understand. I guess I usually hear it in context of media mix modeling versus, or maybe in collaboration with like multi-touch attribution. So just kind of curious to hear your, hear your thoughts slash experiences around the topic. Yeah, definitely. If anybody has any uh, experience with that, please do 
let us know. Um, I, I don't know too much about it, but I do know uh, that Cam Lee, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Cam Lee, uh, look him up on LinkedIn, K-A-M Lee, uh, also on, on on Google. He's got a bunch of talks around that. That's kind of his area of specialty. I know cool. he writes about that and he has uh, read a couple of blog posts or rather I've seen headlines for a couple of blog posts about that as well. Um, and he's mm-hmm. been on a couple of podcasts talking about that. So that's, a, <laughs> sorry, that's a resource that could uh, potentially help kick you off. Anybody else here worked with, uh, was it media mixed modeling? Media mix, yeah. Yeah, media mix modeling. Anyone uh, been? Yeah, I I had to Google it. Yeah. And because I've never used, I've never heard that term before. (laughs) And I'd expect, yeah, it's like a branch of uh, just marketing and attribution, right? I mean, that's where you're going is where you're trying to figure out which channel, uh, which ad is most effective and which one to attribute any sort of customer behavior towards. Is that where, is that it? Yeah. Yeah. And like the thing I think was kind of interesting is to me was like that you are isolating. It's the challenging part, you know, as you're trying to isolate, you know, the one channel's impact at any given time when they're all, you know, all moving parts and everything. And so just trying to think about how to pull all those different all the different data together over a sufficiently, um, you know, diverse and interesting period of time sounds pretty crazy. Um, but being able to figure out the looking at, you know, like the dimin- diminishing returns um, curves for different channels and being able to turn down budget on one channel, recognizing that you're going to make it up in another channel, um, you know, theoretically sounds awesome. I'm just curious if anybody who, who's actually done it and like, you know, results, experiences, battle scars, et cetera. So. It's like way more complicated than, you know, I, I looked at it. I just, like I said, I just did a quick Google search on it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, it doesn't work. It's the, the chain of decisions that a customer goes through and the whole behavioral process that they go through. It, it's like, it's never the same twice. And so unless they're starting from exactly the same point and they're from exactly the same segment and there's just so much more to it that trying to build something like that one dimensional and that granular typically doesn't work. It's a, it's a much, much bigger, bigger model in the end, if you want to do something like that accurately, because when you start doing the, the mix analysis, what you end up with is a whole lot of trial and error and you end up going down the AB testing route. And that will lead you to actually starting to do the data science that'll help you understand your customer better. And you wander straight into behavioral modeling at that point. But yeah, I think I know where you're coming from, but if you want, it really is interesting, but it starts you down a road that you'll end up a year from now kind of going, why did I ever start there? And I'm not saying that, you know, ridiculing, I'm just saying like, maybe that was me seven years ago or something like that when we called it something different, but yeah, it's a way, way more complicated problem, but it's really interesting. And if you can start working down this way and build an experimental framework and like an AB testing framework, you can find some really interesting stuff out. Serge, uh, you're about to uh, drop some knowledge as well. Uh, Not really about this field. I don't know a lot about uh, how to apply in in marketing i mean the most i've done for marketing is a long time ago you know a b testing things um a lot less driven by machine learning um fortunately 
uh, the space of digital analytics is one I'm acquainted of, but not not to that, uh, not applying those techniques. Shout out to uh, to both Mark and Mikiko in the building. Good to see y'all as usual. Always a pleasure, Mikiko. Uh, please lace us with some of that knowledge. Yeah. So this was work that I was like very intimately involved in leading and planning when I was in. When, when essentially when I was working as like a sales data scientist uh, and like finance analyst uh, for WalkMe. And this was something that like, so there's a companies, a couple companies out there. Okay. So sales like analytics and marketing analytics is like really intimately like tied together. Like there's this huge connection, especially when you start getting into like planning for like budgeting, um, planning for like resource allocation. So a question for us was like, and this is like a big one was given that we were an enterprise product, um, but we were servicing both like SMB and enterprise, not so much consumer. Um, what, how much money should we basically be giving marketing? How much money should we be giving our like inbound, like sales, like account executives or whatever? Um, and how much money should we be giving our BDRs? And one thing that I think was really kind of tricky and like everything Vince said is correct, which means that nothing has changed. <laughs> nothing has changed um, except for the tooling and some amount of like sophistication from, you know, sales analysts who are a lot more like data driven nowadays. Right. Um, is that like, first off, for depending on the product, um, there's like a huge difference in like, like lifetime value and cycle. Um, so essentially like to go for, and this was like true, essentially like by geo. So for example, like our, for whatever reason, like our, our North America sales just came in a lot. They came in and they churned out a lot faster than like, let's say like a different region. And this was true also in different company sizes, like typically like in big enterprise companies, like deals take a lot longer but that's also where you might want like a BDR. BDR is a business development rep. So they go out and do what's called the whale hunting. So they go out and go get whales. Um, typically like guys who handle the inbound leads, they're typically served more junior. And it's one of these things where like, there's also different quality leads. So essentially what ends up happening is that like, you have to do a couple of things. Like one, you have to kind of understand like what is like the market, the marketing to sales life cycle. You have to understand what is every single touch point that someone could potentially come through. Secondly, you need to understand, like, are there distinct differences and attributes associated to, like, certain segments? Because that will massively impact. So, like, a big realization that, like, um, at that time I was working with, like, the VP of Revenue Operations, that he really struggled to get across to our finance teams was that, so they were doing this very traditional approach of modeling, like, every single opportunity that came in as, like, it all has the same attributes. Which, of course, this is where data science machine learning can help, right? Is figuring out some of these things. Um, but that was just not true. So if you give, for example, marketing. So basically, it's like if we want to produce $10 million in revenue at the end of the year, um, you don't need $10 million of investment. You need, depending on your ratio, uh, anywhere from like 20 to $100 million in like marketing investment. But... The fun part is that each of those age out differently. And it's one of these things where like, you're not going to get all your leads coming in, like in the beginning of the year, you get them rolling. And more importantly, like some types of deals come in at like different type, types of the year. So 
what is, so what that ends up looking like from a modeling perspective is like, <laughs> if you're doing this in Excel and Google Sheets, and, and I built like a bunch of these models, um, God bless you. Cause it took us like six Google docs linked all together. Cause we maxed out on the data on each one. And this was way before, like I gone to engineering, right. Um, and it's one of these things where like, then you also have to like apply in the key stakeholder, like, you know, what do they think is going to happen? So uh, short answer is try not doing that in Excel, use Excel or Google Sheets as like the illustrative tool to kind of like get people on board um, as much as possible. Try to like get that into like scripts and all that. But more importantly, like you kind of want to have the conversation of like, how is this going to be used? Right. So, for example, if they look at it and they go like, OK, well, historically, we've needed like we've grown like $10 million in revenue, like every year. And we need $5 million in revenue every year. That actually might not be the case, right? Like they might need something else. Um, I go on and on about this, but it, it it's less like, it's less of a technical exercise and it becomes more of a like, how well do they understand their business and like a key stakeholder management? Because that, that analysis came at a point where they're like, well, marketing's very expensive. The industry is getting very saturated. Therefore, we should churn down the investment. But we had also made like, like we had made ARR like targets to our investors. And so it was one of these things where like, yeah, we can ramp up our like outbound or inbound sales guys. They're very expensive. And guess what? They have a quota ramping period, which means that we actually cannot be churning down our like marketing revenue. And because of the life cycle of that product, if you turn down the marketing revenue in the beginning of the year, you could literally go 10 million ARR below what you promised, and it would be too late to realize it. Because if it's a product that takes a year to convert people, and six months in, you realize like, oh, shoot, we, we're not going to reach that, you like, <laughs> you need to let them know. But that's the kinds of, kinds of insights, honestly, that get you like promoted and elevated, is this whole like... If we don't spend this money now and we don't spend it like intelligently, um, our company is going to be in trouble. So, yeah. Sorry, that's a lot of words. I'm very excited about this stuff. Any follow up questions or, or comments on that? Shout out to Joe Reese in the building. I got it. It exploded. Awesome. Good. <laughs> Well, this uh, this will be immediately available right there on the YouTube channel, so feel free to go in and tune in there run, to run that back. All right, so if you guys got questions, let me know. Mark got a question. Uh, so Mark's next up in the queue. And then actually, uh, after, after Mark, if there's no questions, I wanted to ask Eric about the, uh, Eric Sims about this post he made earlier this week. That I, I really enjoyed that post. Uh, we're talking about um, getting a little vulnerable there, so you know, I'm gonna hit, hit you up about that. Talk about that, but uh, Mark, go for it. Yeah, anyone tuning in on LinkedIn or on YouTube or Twitch, let me know if you have any questions as well. Definitely. So this this may be like a very basic question, but I'm trying to wrap my head around so I can explain to our engineering team better the difference between a scheduler, like a cron job, and a orchestration tool like Airflow. Um, and what were kind of like the pros and cons of both approaches. The way I kind of understand it right now is like cron jobs are great because they're easy to do and easy to implement. But as you scale up, 
um, as with the startup that I'm in, that's that easiness becomes a nightmare of trying to manage everything. And then for orchestration tools, my understanding is like, you know, if you have a lot of moving pieces, this orchestration tool can smartly determine what's the best path to optimize these kind of actions and have this infrastructure as code. But at the same time, like there's a lot of upfronts to get it set up. And that's my current understanding, but I want to know what I'm missing and what I should be reading just so I can be prepared when I present this to um, the engineering team. Uh, Joe, do you want to take this one? <clears throat> sure. I mean, schedulers are great um, when you need to do exactly what it describes, right? Which is scheduling things. So scheduling is very time bound. I think Makiko actually put in the chat, cron jobs say when to run orchestrations say what and when I, I agree with this. Um, it's in the Zoom, by the way, if you're on LinkedIn. But so schedulers are good if you have um, things that are need to be on a schedule, right? Uh, obviously, it's just a time bound thing. At say midnight, mm -hmm. this job's going to kick off. That's great. So the issue, the challenges with with, with uh, schedulers is um, what, so you, so you, you start one at midnight, and then you have another that starts at one a.m. Right? What happens when that one at midnight starts going into like you know into like one fifteen, but the job at, that starts at one? Kind of depends on the the job at midnight being done. That's where the kind of the challenges of scheduling come in. You know, and I've seen this where jobs start out taking an hour. Hey, they grow. You know, things suddenly start taking like six hours, eight hours. Now you're having to do this whack-a-mole thing with scheduling. You know, your jobs and stuff, and it just ends up being a gigantic headache. And you can't really get ahead of it if you're successful. Um, whereas orchestration, you know, really. You can obviously set things on a timer, but you can also set things, there's dependencies. So when this task finishes, this job, that triggers this other job to, to start, right? And it's only when, you know, one dependency is finished, the other one starts. And so you, you avoid this uh, these, uh, kind of overlapping time domains and, and jobs. So Because in a lot of cases, if your job is producing data that another uh, task or job depends upon, and that data is not done, and this other job starts, you can kind of see the problem with that, right? happens all the time so yeah. hopefully that answers it no that, that definitely does and that kind of aligns with kind of what i was thinking i guess also i'm just trying to understand like what's industry best practice which it may be because may not be because every every situation is different but like i guess an organization running all on cron jobs is that normal or is that just like technical debt that vince vince face maybe says technical debt but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's normal and it's also a technical debt, but I would say technical debt's also normal. So mm -hmm. um, this depends on how much interest you want to pay on your debt. Uh, I, I use cron jobs all the time, to be frank. I think it's great because if you don't have systems that depend on each other, then it's it's fine. It's only when you have systems that depend on each other is where you're going to start running into problems. So Yeah, I'm, not, I, I'm definitely starting to kind of, not. it's not necessarily a problem now, but I see it on the horizon and I'm trying to get ahead of it. And so I guess like when you've seen orgs, like working with these cron jobs and maybe just transitioning to an orchestration tool, you know, what are the typical pain points beyond just kind of like things aren't aligning correctly that like motivates them to be like, all right, we need to actually invest in infrastructure for this. It's so hard to say. It's so hard to say. I figured. Yeah, it just it totally depends. But I'd say stand up something like Airflow or Dagster or Prefect and just kind of, you know, start small and, and go from there. But you're, your challenges and the roadblocks will become apparent very soon as you do this. So, but mm -hmm. it's very, very, but certain things are like, you know, obviously package dependencies are a big one, right? And then 
you know, but there's, it, it could be any number of things, frankly. So. Serge uh, in the chat says uh, DAGs directed, directed acyclic graphs, right? So they're awesome. Talk to us about why they're awesome because Airflow is a DAG. Well, Joe, Joe just spoke to that. Uh, the fact that you have dependencies um, and, and DAGs have that property that if one thing isn't finished, I mean, it has and, and it requires something else, then, you know, it has to wait. And so that's part of the scheduling aspect of it. So things are all tied together and, and the DAGs make sure that they they follow in order. So, um, I mean, I, I don't need to elaborate further than what Joe Weiss, Rice yeah. just said, but it's just uh, basically the uh, how that it was built with DAGs. Uh, so Kostub in the, uh, in the LinkedIn comment, cron jobs get complicated when there are artifacts that you're dependent on. Uh, Rodney wants to know, so where would GitHub Actions fit in? Uh, Vin, go for it. Yeah, I just wanted to add real quick before we get too much. Every time you implement like a new system, especially if you go to orchestration, <clears throat> you're going to pick a platform or you're going to pick a direction to, to build your infrastructure out to. Just remember, you're going to break a ton of stuff as you go. So just be really careful, you know, and advertise the fact that a whole bunch of stuff breaks along the way because you start using it everyone thinks it's awesome and then everyone starts using it and everything breaks because kind of like i said in the comments it's, it's crazy how much runs on cron and then you know the person who all built it all is gone and so no one really understands it when they start touching it everything breaks so just one huge red flag it's it's great until you start breaking stuff uh, that's, that's super helpful. And I think I probably wouldn't be the one to implement it. It would probably be on the engineering side, but I'm trying to just get the facts and plant the seed now. So a year from now, they're like, oh yeah, Mark wrote that document. Let's actually fix this today. Yeah. But I mean, you're going to get blamed for it, but like no matter who develops it, it's your idea. <laughs> and, you know, after they're done blaming the person that broke it, it's going to be you. And so I'm, I, I just really want to warn you about the, the side effects of architecture i'll tell them that you told me to, to build it so i'll go with that uh, so the question coming in from from linkedin where would github actions fit in anybody have any uh tips for that Mikiko? CICD. <laughs> that's basic but i think they're trying to generalize it so that like so basically with github actions you use like yaml like actually maybe you, you i think it is a yaml file so you basically use yaml to specify like a bunch of parameters um and then github kind of like host the thing for you um so cicd is like the most immediate one but i kind of feel like they're trying to like cicd is, is a is a sub part of what they're tr trying to do they're basically trying to like create like their version of zapier or what have you. So some kind of like hosted automation, um, pretty much. Then in the chat on LinkedIn, Coastlip says, I recently found that GitHub Actions work better for build artifacts. Complicated dependencies within the same repository are easier to manage with GitHub Actions, and you can set them up for more complicated requirements than just something that's time dependent. Uh, yeah, Zapier is awesome, by the way. Uh, I love that stuff. 
that that's uh it's been quite helpful I need to uh need to get on the paid tier because i've used up all my free zaps it's not even the middle of the month yet um <clears throat> any other questions coming in from linkedin or here in the chat if not eric talk to us about the uh this uh post you made on linkedin earlier this week how you feeling today man how, how you feeling how you feeling after that yeah so i have i have tried over the past you know couple of years or however long i've been like posting on linkedin to like lean into the feeling of if i act like a real human people will respond like real humans and that'll be refreshing because it's real um and uh i can confirm i'm glad to hear it (laughs) and so yesterday uh yeah yesterday was a terrible day um and uh i kind of got to the end of the day and i was sitting there feeling crappy and i thought you know i might as well just i'll write about this now and i'll write what i'm feeling because i know it's you know helpful to like talk through or get out of what's in my head so that i don't to use mark freeman's word catastrophize it um and uh and so I started writing things down. It was helpful because it gave my, me a little bit of perspective of like, well, that's not actually what I was thinking and rewriting, you know, and um, getting that out there. And then I thought it would be nice to share it now um, while I'm while I'm feeling what I'm feeling. Um, hopefully after having, you know, written something and read it over to make sure that I'm actually saying what I'm feeling instead of just like throwing out feelings that end up not being very coherent. Um, and then instead of waiting until I had a success story that I could post and, you know, have everybody love it and see that I overcame imposter syndrome, right? Um, which, you know, I don't know if anybody really, okay, some people will say that they overcome imposter syndrome. Um, but I think that to a small extent, pretty much everybody experiences it at some point um, and probably repeatedly judging by a lot of the comments um, and things that I've gotten. And it's been really, it's been really interesting, uh, really cool to see what other people have to say and a lot of good ice cream flavor recommendations if anybody's um interested in that uh as well i don't know is there anything in particular that that you want to call out or talk about yeah i just want to see how you're feeling after that because uh you know you're talking about you'd write your feel. you mentioned you'd write your feelings now while you still feel feel lousy and then uh try to come up with the story of how you overcame it uh in the morning so have you overcame it do you do, do you feel any better yeah, so I spent the day I spent the day working on one of the things that I screwed up or you know on my missed deadline for my analysis and it ended up taking forever uh because you know quick data pull turns into crap there's not even this data isn't even in this database and so now I got to join these two databases and bring them you know you know the story. Um but got it done by the end of the day. Uh, and so you know it's I think I am feeling better but I can't wait for I'm glad it's the weekend. <laughs> I'll take that too. Yeah, yeah definitely. Okay, great. I've been like, you know, speaking of that imposter of thing, just like even just trying to learn something new and like, it's like, oh man, I feel like this is something I should already know, but I don't know it. And I'm learning it and I'm like, okay, this is tougher than I thought it would be. Right. Uh, it definitely is a disheartening uh, feeling, but then it's also fun at the same time. Like all this week, I've just had a consistent, um, uh, I won't say headache, but there's just felt like there's, there's like a, a knot in my brain um, from like, I've just been studying data structures and algorithms because why not? Got to do it, right? Got I should know this stuff. Uh, by the way, I recommend uh, this quick read, Corey Althoff, self-taught computer scientist. 
um, good overview of, of topics just to get vocabulary, um, just to have the vocabulary, because I think that's super important when you're uh, learning something is just to know the names of things so you can go dig deeper. Um, Eric, thank you so much for, for sharing that. Mark mentioned uh, fish food ice cream. I don't know what that is. What, what flavor is that? Um, imagine they took every single sweet chocolatey thing and just threw into a Ben and Jerry's tub of ice cream. And it's amazing. Nice. Definitely have to try that. Fish, fish the band though, not like the the uh, aquatic creature. Oh, okay. wait, is yeah. that what it's named after? Yeah, fish the band. All right. I never realized that, but it makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah, fish, and they also have like uh, cherry Garcia from the Grateful Dead. Yeah, it was a bunch yeah. of other, like Deadhead flavors, but yeah, they're uh, it's Ben and Jerry's, just hippie ice cream, right? So yeah, yeah, hundred percent. They have chocolate fishes in there. It's good stuff. It's good after you, you know you you um have other things to you know as a warm-up so yeah all right uh any questions coming in from anyone here uh oh there's one coming in from coast dub um on linkedin actually i don't know why he's not here uh he said i've seen github actions used to promote uh model experimentation especially with dvc and cml have you guys tried it no i tried comet ml so uh, instead of trying those things you should try comet ml it is a great solution coast up um definitely check it out um i've got some tutorials up that you can, you can peek at uh questions comments or anything of that nature uh let me know shameless plug and as hey look man uh do what i gotta do to pay the bills but no um no it's a great product i feel like we're solving a lot of problems and i'm very proud of the work that we're putting in at the at the team and um yeah, I'm excited to be doing all these presentations over the next couple of weeks. Talking about imposter syndrome, man, going out there and doing presentations at these huge conferences when I'm like, I don't, you know, I have to convince myself that I think I know what I'm talking about. Um, it's tough, man. It, it's really, really difficult, like being on these, like, these huge, I don't want to say huge stages, but just wide audiences. And I don't know, it's, 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 uh, imposter syndrome will keep, keep in for sure. Very often. All right, let's uh, let's keep it moving, man. Questions, comments, anything, Serge? What's going on, man? Any any uh, questions or any comments? Any questions? Yeah. Hmm. Not really. I mean, uh, I came unprepared too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I I was hoping, you know, just I I just like uh, coming to these things, hearing what everybody has to say, but um, I don't often have too much to say. Yeah. I mean, it's been a slow week. It's my first week back to work from uh, after vacation so yeah nice. uh, i'm still i'm still not completely in the you know work zone i should be yeah uh, <laughs> makiko how you doing i'm doing better but it, it was nice seeing eric's post because i'm like it was a little bit of a rough week <laughs> it's been rough uh last month or two so a lot of changes in my work area and trying new things. Some of those new things haven't worked out. Um, so, you know, but I think this community is cool. Yeah. So, well, I do think you. it's like, it's, it is one of those things of like, if you're, it's funny, I'm wondering like who the traditional candidate, the traditional engineer is anymore, frankly, but 
Yeah, I, th- I feel like I spend most of my time feeling really stupid. <laughs> yeah, and every yeah. time I read more books, I feel more stupid. Yeah. So. The 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 more I get exposed to, the more I'm like, shit. It just like, there's this quote. Uh, Marcelo Glacier has this book called The Island of Knowledge, and he says, "The bigger that his island of knowledge gets, so do the shores of his ignorance." Uh, so I thought that was just like a powerful quote. Like you know, you got like this island of knowledge, and even though the island gets bigger, at the same time, what you don't know starts getting bigger and bigger as well uh powerful powerful uh just don't read anything <laughs> yeah just don't read and no. don't yeah i know i know some some of the happiest people i know are the ones who um they don't fill their head with a lot they're smart but they're just like yeah i don't need that how happy are you joe are you one of those happy ones no i, I i'm I, if on that scale i make i'm like hyper depressed because i just read way too much and learn too much that's always been a well, well, the skill and the talent of the character flaw, I suppose. So, what I've been doing the last what about over a month or so is like usually I, I do listen to a lot of audiobooks, you know, when I'm in the shower and I'm, you know, at the gym, when I'm going for walks, or whatever, just listening to, to audiobooks. And they're usually nonfiction, you know, like Nassim Taleb's books or some, you know, shit like that. Um, but recently I've been just reading, science, like listening to rather science fiction, um, just kind of not just having that constant barrage of information and just trying to unwind through that. And that's been really fun. So oh, um, yeah, you hit me up. You're reading a snow crash right now. Yeah. Yeah. Snow crash is cool. I'm, I'm still, I'm still about halfway into it. That book is it's, it's dope, man. That coined the term, the metaverse. And apparently he was uh, Neil Stevenson was on Lex Friedman's podcast. So I'll definitely have to check that out as well. Uh, but before that, uh, uh, like earlier in, in the month or later last, you know, in December, I was reading a, re-listening to Kurt Vonnegut. I remember reading that book back when I was like in high school and it was uh, Galapagos. That book was was great. Um, but yeah, Snow Crash is awesome, man. Snow Crash is uh, a good book, man. I'm enjoying it. Uh, what I liked about that book too is it sort of tells you, you know, when, you're, when you, uh, it's funny reading science fiction, uh, especially um, kind of short-term science fiction, you know, like, a, like, a, like something that's about to happen on the near horizon. So Cyberpunk is a really good example. So like uh, Neuromancer does this, Snow Crash does this, and a lot of other books from the era do it, where it's like everyone's using tapes, mm-hmm. like cassette tapes, videotapes, but it's some sort of a tape thing. And you're just like that. You got some of it right, but it's like the medium. You always try and think later, like, well, nobody who will always use tape, obviously. Um, and then, of course, you're not. So and so that's kind of interesting. Snow Crash came out like in 20, uh, just 2000, I think. 92. 92 really oh snap yeah i bought it first copy when it came out wow. and the other yeah. book you're saying is called uh neuromancer neuromancer it's by william gibson i think it came out in 1987 yeah definitely check that one out as well um but yeah, yeah, that's where so- cyberspace came from that's that's the book where cyberspace was coined nice I'll definitely check that out um yeah it's been nice listening to just like science fiction it's been a good kind of a de-stressor disconnector uh by the way there's a question coming in from Coastep. um What's your ratio of one-off models versus long-term running models? That's a good question. I was uh, listening to a, um, it was like a presentation by, I believe it's the head of data science at Slack. I can't remember his name. I want to say Josh Willis, but I don't know if that's right or not. And, uh, and, and his argument, I thought it was a really good argument, was that if you're building one-off models for something, then the problem you're working on wasn't even that important to begin with. Um, that when you're building machine learning models, you should be constantly deploying, constantly uh, 
doing releases and, and builds and things like that. So I, I'd love to hear what that what other folks uh, think about that. Let's go to Vin and then Serge. Um, what's the, the ratio of one-off models versus long-term running models? Uh, I don't, I mean, I get why you do one-off models because that's where, I mean, it's almost like where you start. If the business is at zero, it's, it's oh, yeah, Makiko said, yeah. I'm not sure who said it first. That was, that was kind of like a jinx moment possibly through text and me saying it. But yeah, everything starts off, you know, especially at low maturity companies, everything's a one-off because there's no place to put it. You know, and so if you don't have a production environment that's stable and you don't have a release process that's that's repeatable, yeah, everything's a one-off. So I kind of get that. You know, there's a necessity piece of it, but the faster you can get away from that, the better. Because every time you do a one-off, it's going to end up being way more work in the long term because, you know, for every five one-off models that just kind of go someplace and die, one of them doesn't. And it gets deployed in the hankiest and worst fashion. And then you're on the hook for supporting it and eventually replacing it. it, it it's one-offs are horrible. So, I mean, if you can get to a hundred percent long runs, that's way, way better. Your, your sanity will increase significantly, but there's so much, there's so much maturity that has to happen first that like I get from a practical standpoint that it, you know, what I'm saying and what's possible are sometimes two different things. And if you're just not there, I mean, you're stuck with it. Just realize it's painful. <laughs> the more time it takes you to get from one-offs to everything is fairly good practice. I'm not going to say best practice, but at least fairly good practices and a, a standard release process. It's, it hurts and it takes way more time than it should. And uh, it's a great follow-up question because I'm thinking the same thing uh, with, with Costa, uh, as Eric here, an example of one-off model. So Costa, if you can clarify that a little bit by one-off model, what do you mean? Uh, one-off versus long-term uh, running models. Uh, my understanding was one-off model is okay. Like I'm just going to build a model and I'm going to get some predictions or solutions, whatever, and then uh, pump that out and just be done with it. Or does that mean just build one model and then not even account for drift or anything like that and just let the model degrade and and just have that thing serve predictions um let's go to uh mark i see your hand up so uh mark actually uh sorry i said uh surge first let's go to surge then mark um surge go for it yeah like uh at least uh where i work like you you basically you everything starts like mikigo said it's a one-off you have a proof of concept and you test it against uh, historical data, but you know it doesn't stop there. You still have to deploy it to test it live. And in agriculture, you know you're talking about you know it's seasonal and everything is a year, right? So uh, you pretty much still have to validate it for a year before it becomes a cyclical thing. So um, and by cyclical, I mean then you know have to train something for the next year, and then you have to do continuous training throughout the season if you want in-season predictions. And so, um, yeah, it, it is a very long cycle. So, and in a different industry, it might not have that that same pattern. And so it's uh, it's it's odd in that sense. But I I do think that most companies, you know, have some kind of process where they build a model once, they still have to prove it before they put in the effort of actually making it 
turning it into something that's continuous integration, continuous training, checking model drift and all that. Um, Eventually, I mean, hopefully that's something that uh, is taken care of by a system. And there are already systems that do that, that take care of observability and so forth. Um, And, uh, you know, it really depends what the needs are of the company uh, to to make that effort. But I, I think it's certainly kind of a drag as Vin said, you know, having that like two kind of approaches and then reconciling between each. Um, yeah. So, that's- so just uh, just want to reference uh, just the the talk I was talking about. I'll drop a link for the talk here, um, but just quoting um, uh, the the head of data science at Slack. He's saying uh, at Slack, we try to publish a new search ranking model once a day. Roughly speaking, that's our goal. We are iterating just as fast as we can, trying new features, trying new algorithms, trying new parameters. Uh, we're always trying to bring new models into production just as fast as humanly possible. In fact, as a design goal, building an assembly line uh, for building models, building as many models as you can has all kinds of dividends and advantages. Uh, and then he says, don't ever do one model in production. Do thousands of models or zero models. If you're working on a problem, you need to deploy into production but you're never actually going to rebuild the model. That's a strong signal that this problem is not actually worth your time. I thought that was super, super powerful. Definitely. Well, if, if I may say something about that, um, yeah, like Slack, obviously I can understand why it's, it's something that constantly, because it's, it's after all, not social media, but kind of Mm -hmm. in that sense that it's always on and it it doesn't necessarily uh, follow like a a yearly approach. Like it is where I work. But uh, I do agree with making many models. And I do find it like kind of counterproductive where I make a model for one country, for one crop, if I can do the same thing in assembly for a bunch of different countries and validate it all at once, especially if I'm waiting a year, you know? Mm-hmm. So might as well have results for everything rather mm-hmm. than do it once. So I do follow that assembly approach where I work um, in that sense. Uh, unfortunately, as far as like the timing goes, it's still like a year long wait to actually see conclusive results. Mm-hmm. So Costa is in the building now. Costa, go ahead and clarify uh, your question there, and then we'll go to Mark and then Nikiko. Uh, what I was kind of trying to ascertain is like, so in my world, which is more the like robotics computer vision world, a lot of the problems are more um, at a consumer at a consumer level. So you've got consumers trying to identify things through their iPad camera, um, you know, out in the field uh, versus a lot of the time in conversation with other data scientists, I find that it's more about answering uh, questions to business leadership. So the models are in use by business leadership or, or they're kind of the end user. It's kind of an internal end user as opposed to an external end user. So I was just trying to get a feel for, uh, you know, um, there's a, I, I think there's a, is there a difference? Do you guys perceive a difference in terms of the, uh, you know, managing model uptime, managing, uh, you know, the quality of the end product, the usability of the end product. Um, I'm, I'm just, I don't have much of an experience in in how you guys glue that gap. For us, we've got to have a really tight front end. We've got to have a really tight, you know, user interface. Or within the robotics world, um, we've got to have a really tight interface with the rest of the robot and the rest of the robotic system, right? Um, how does that reflect from like a business data science perspective? Um, it sounds like there's less of a impact on the on the lifespan of the model. There's still a uh, preference to go for long living models that continuously run on data coming in. 
but how do you guys glue that together? Like, is that different to a product or is that the same? Uh, Mark, go for it. Yeah, so <clears throat> I can't really speak on like having models in production continuously because I'm at a, a, a startup getting its uh, data wings going. But uh, I will say something that this reminded me of in, in the programming programmer is one of my favorite chapter sections was the difference between uh, prototypes and tracer bullets, where prototypes are essentially like you build it, you show like, hey, this is something we can do. This is awesome but your goal is to not use it in production, just like scrap it, right? As for tracer bullets, you're trying to go something end to end as quickly as possible um, and then iterate consistently on process. So like the Slack kind of kind of thing going on. Um, and so that's what this conversation kind of reminded me of. And, and many times I feel like data scientists fall into the trap of, well, I did this quick thing. I have so much on my plate. This worked just great. So I'm just going to throw this in and we'll update it later. And then uh, I'm in the situation I've been described where it breaks and I'm on the hook for it. Um, and so I think it's really just uh, dependent on kind of like your use case. Like once you described it more, I was like, wow, that seems like a completely different set of criteria that I haven't even considered for, for uh, robotics. And then to provide kind of like a real world example, like this happening, um, especially on the startup side, like we're trying to find great new products to have that product market fit. And so for, for me, we'll have hackathons on our data science team. We'll be like, hey, here's a potential product direction you want to go. And I'll create like hacky prototypes with the goal of is doing something in two days. And it, the goal isn't necessarily to build something to put in production. The goal is to build something that'll get the product team excited and the company excited for a potential direction. And then once it gets picked up, it's like, we want to prioritize that. Then I do the full kind of end-to-end -end integration. Mark, I I'm curious, what is that that you have that's like automatically zooming in and zooming out on your camera? I, I need that. That's I, awesome. Uh, it's the Insta360. All right. uh, it's like a, it has a webcam feature, but it's like a GoPro. But okay. the only challenge is if I use my hands a lot, it'll like follow my hands. <laughs> um, so I'm still learning how to use it properly. I might turn it off. So uh, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, the Pragmatic Programmer, uh, I did do an interview with Andy Hunt, co-author of the book. There's a link right there in the chat. Go ahead and check that out. Uh, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed chatting with him. Makiko, go for it. Damn, Joe just jumped right off. So I was going to ask a question. Ah. <laughs> oh, man. Because I um, I guess like I, I didn't quite understand um, Kostep's question, but probably because like in my head, like what I feel like what we're struggling with and I haven't seen a clear cut answer is like how do we like how do we allow like the innovation and the experimentation and the modeling to happen while like there's a balance between like making sure things are ready for production and like not killing the experimentation and that's like something that we really really struggle with and i feel like i've seen a couple different perspectives and so chip Huyen, she had this blog post uh, where she's like, data scientists should not learn, should, they should not have to learn Kubernetes. And she mentioned um, about how there's kind of like this like leaky, leaky abstraction between dev and prod. And it's like something that we're legitimately like struggling with because I think the way like some companies have treated it, it was a little, 
like they are like, okay, we'll take these like Jupiter notebooks or SageMaker or whatever, and we'll go ahead and wrap it. And then you can run it as like a production instance. And my personal opinion is we don't want that actually. <laughs> like, cause there's just a lot, of, no, we don't want that. Especially when it comes to like handling like big data, like, oh, sorry, not big data, um, big, large volumes, high latency. We don't want that. Um, and also too, we need to have checks in place. For example, um, we do like email marketing or we enable small, medium-sized businesses to like do e email marketing. Um, we don't want to be participating in like misinformation or like bias of some kind, right? So we do need to have certain checks. We do need to have monitoring. Um, we do need to have like, you know, online performance tracking. And it's like something that like we're, we've personally struggled with, we've had to kind of just draw a line, understanding that it it's a line that might not work for every company. Um, but I am like really kind of curious as to like how people have managed that like dev to prod, like that bridging. I feel like that's the goal in question, frankly, in, I don't say in ML ops, but in literally like productionalizing ML. It's how do you bridge that? Um, honestly, because the way I look at it is I'm like, technically every model is like a one-off model <laughs> until it gets into like the CICD, <laughs> until it gets, you know, until it gets orchestrated and all that, everything is a one-off model. Um, but still like how I'm kind of curious how people have managed that transition or like if they have opinions about that. Um, so, yeah. It's actually, um, so the, the talk I'm doing at ODSC on Tuesday, it's centered around that theme, ML system design for continuous experimentation. and we're talking about there's an artificial split between development and production environments. Um, and we're looking at case studies from uh, Tesla, some dating app and, and Slack as well. Um, so definitely, I don't want to spoil it. Just come and listen. It'll be short, half an hour. Um, but Vin, go for it. Yeah, this is, when you said that's the golden question, it's like, yeah, you nailed it. That is 100% what a lot of companies are trying to figure out. And the way it really works comes from a number, the way you end up comes from a number of different perspectives because, you know, there's the age old data science doesn't always result in something and you got to manage that. And so that's kind of tied into what you're saying, because sometimes you don't end up building something that's productized and you have to do some work and go back and make it better before you can actually put it in production. And then when you start looking at research, actual like ML research, that doesn't always result in a product. And so from an engineering standpoint, you know, you guys can't be spending time as an ML ops team or an ML engineering team trying to productize something that's never going to end up, like it's going to die on the vine because the, the research ends up getting killed at some point. And then there's really the dichotomy between different types of data scientists. You have data scientists who are really research focused. Yeah, they can write code, but nobody would want to put what they write in production ever. It literally is sometimes death to a production environment because the code's that bad, but they're really smart and they create models that are, you can't, you can't really duplicate that if you have such a hardcore engineering background in some cases, then you have that, that ML engineer data scientist who their code is beautiful. It makes you want to cry when you look at it. And what ends up happening is you break these two off. You have a model development life cycle and you have a research life cycle. Research life cycle happens before 
you ever even put anything on a product roadmap because that is the only way it works. You know, because that's not something you as a team have to look at and say, how would I even operationalize that? You know, you don't have to worry about it until there's something there to operationalize. And so that's where you allow innovation to just go crazy over there. And then from a business standpoint, there's all this stuff you have to do to, to you know, manage and oversee research so it doesn't go crazy and actually gives the company money. But that's like a totally different thing. The, if you break the two apart, you have such a happier team because the artifacts of research then get published, you know, and it's not a paper, it's a model, it's a data set, or it's some combination. Usually it's a lot of models and data sets, but that gets published. It gets reviewed by that research team and then it gets handed off. And that's something you can actually deploy. Like that's something you can now plan for. You can figure out where to put, you know, best practices around it. And you don't stop innovation from happening because that happens in a totally different lifestyle that you don't care about. And it's only once the publication happens that you look at the artifacts and say, okay, now I've got to care about this. Now there's products that we're going to be building around this. Now there's revenue booked against, you know, it's just all of that business stuff shows up. And that's how you keep best practices kind of segmented on the other side of the fence. So the business doesn't go out of business and you don't end up doing all the worst things possible. But at the same time, you still get that cool, innovative, you know, leading edge type work. And you can still do all the regulatory compliance pieces. And really one of the biggest parts of regulatory happens at the experimental, at that research phase. Because you have to, like you, you don't realize, well, most people don't realize that most research has to go through an approval process. Like you can't even do the experiment until somebody on a board signs off and like you get an ethical review of this and that you're not going to mess with somebody's head. And so much of the marketing experimentation that gets done, like you can't do that without approval. You can't do that without reviews. And so when you talk about like the regulatory and keeping the world safe, you know, from AI, half of that's experimental review, research review process. And like you don't, in your side of the world, you shouldn't have to worry about that. You shouldn't get a model that's finished and ready for production. And you've been monitoring it for a while and you go, you know what? Um, I think this is really going to do some horrible things to people. <laughs> like you shouldn't, and the ML ops team should not be the one responsible for that. It's not, it's not okay. And that's really in business is what happens when you don't separate these things out is now your AI ethics team is responsible for like stuff they can't be responsible for. No, no way of doing it. And so that, that's really the, like the, the five and a half minute answer of how you manage innovation without killing it. Dan, thank you. Kostub, go for it. Man, that's um, that last bit about uh, the ML ops and the ML engineers being responsible for the ethical aspects of it it gets really complicated particularly in uh niche areas like i'm sure people who anyone who's in the autonomous vehicle space is probably battling that entire conversation right now um personally i've seen it in the defense robotics space especially because there's like what 20 people in australia doing ml for defense robotics right now right um and it got really complicated like it does get extremely complicated to figure out should we do something and how do we do something? They're two very different questions, right? And while there needs to be crosstalk between those communities, I think it's um it's quite hard to establish when 
your typical robotics team are quite small. Um, you know, like they're, they're very small, they're very, very specialized. So it's very hard to find a diverse group of people to even fit into that kind of ecosystem. And particularly when talking about defense, you then have the complication of not being able to hire uh, people from international. So that brings in a lack of variance in perspective. Um, and I think that can have an impact in the ethical outcomes that you kind of agree with, right? Um, but back to the back to the point on like uh, how do you how do you split that dev versus prod kind of thing that Mikiko you were talking about? Um, what I've kind of seen is um, it kind of goes through a bit of a natural cycle, and you have to let it go through a natural cycle of initially it's just data scientists just experimenting with something, and then uh, you start like a pilot process, which is frankly where like a prototype turns into a traceable. It like we hope that we design this traceable correctly, but nine times out of 10, let's be honest, it's a prototype that is in way too deep, right? Like just way too deep. It was never designed for it. The code wasn't designed to handle the kind of scale that your typical infra team would even enjoy because they're sitting there going, why are you rebuilding this massive container every time you change one line of code? Like there's no, you know, container optimization. There's no, uh, you know, CICD built into it a lot of the time. And then you go through that cycle of saying, okay, now how do we operationalize that and make that bit more efficient and tighter so that production is more reliable? So you're going to go through that kind of cyclical um, cyclical development cycle, right? And the complications that we're kind of answering along the way is, is because most other engineering and technical fields in the past have had a very clear line between I'm designing the product and building the product and the product is finished, right? You see that less in software because you're seeing that cycle go through more and more. But even in software, we've managed to design software engineering as this design phase, deployment phase, right? Like the two separate linear, like like what's it called, delineable entities. Whereas in the data science field, it's it's just different because the the the, the situation in which you use that model is going to be very different, right? Um, the way in which we like versioning data, I think we've started to answer that question on how do you manage data versioning? How do you manage model versioning? I think we've got a much stronger grasp on that now than we did say four or five years ago, right? Um, I think that's improved in a long way, but there are still these other questions on how do you maintain the cycle of experimentation? Like you see some more mature companies and the way that they do data science, they end up going through that cyclical cycle and then figuring out that some of their people are just constantly in that research space. And then they end up splitting these teams naturally. So in a sense, I think we naturally organize uh, and any reasonably high-performing team naturally organizes into that kind of style. Um, and none of them seem to do it in the same way, which is the bit that really intrigues me, right? Like whether you look at Nearmap in Australia, you look at so the way like Google's AI team sets up themselves, you look at the way DeepMind sets up themselves, they all have very different flavors on how to get it done, right? Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's still that that human organizational piece is actually what we're talking about in in how do you separate dev versus prod? Who's researching? Who's operationalizing? Who's deciding on the ethics of it? Who's deciding on the market value of it? And it's uh, complicated, particularly in the um, product space. I feel uh, because there's a I think there's a deeper investment in the product space before you get that return. But is it like an artificial? split that's carried over from the software engineering world into machine learning this split between development and production um 
because typically in software, you deploy something and you know, the button works and it does what it does. But it's not like that with machine learning because you deploy something that's serving predictions, recommendations, something that's influencing end user behavior that's changing. Like it, you're changing what you modeled, right? With your actual model. Um, so you have to continuously be being that, in that cycle, you know, continuously experimenting. Um, I don't know. Makiko, any thoughts? I mean, it's interesting because I'm on a software engineering team that's trying to help people get ML models into production. So it's kind of like we're the place between the hard rock and the, God, what's that phrase? Thing. We're that rock and thing. hard place. Rock and hard place. Yeah. <laughs> place. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, because it's interesting. Like if you look at the Google, like ML ops white paper, like, and they're like, what's level three or level whatever maturity, right? Like MLS, CICD. Like they're like, this is experimentation. This experiment, this is like, pro, like experiment dev prod. But like, even then I'm like, hypothetically, there's, you could argue that there's a difference between experimentation and, and dev, right? Because in a way dev is, does the code work as opposed to like, is it experimentation where you're, you're trying to figure out what code should I be creating um or i i well I, yeah i don't know I, and i think that's something we're, we're trying to figure out because it's like at some point we know it needs to have like a unit test <laughs> i'm sorry tests in general <laughs> sorry it was a unit test. it needs to have tests in general it needs to have data validation like there needs to be logging um the code needs to be well organized so then it becomes a question of do we put that burden on like the data scientists to do do we create this new ML engineer who does it? Do we create a platform? Um, so I think like, yeah, we're trying to figure out what that question is. And it's interesting because like we've, like as a team, we've done a ton of research. We've like looked at like the ML ops community and people have different ways of going about it, right? Like you can do a cookie cutter templating thing, but guess what? There's problems with that. Cause now you're maintaining an internal developer tool. Um, you could put the burden on data scientists. Well, guess what? You're then asking for unicorns and those are expensive. They exist, but they're expensive. Um, or do we do like the supply, like, you know, the assembly line thing where each person has a function, but then guess what? You get silos. So it's kind of like, uh, it's almost like that Edith, that Edith Warren quote that she has, like all families all happy families are the same. All unhappy families are different. So it's, I, I think everyone kind of comes up with, I guess, something that works. So maybe the answer is we just try to come up with something that works and then just try not to worry about, about whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's, it's something that I feel like it is a ch challenge because once again, like I don't know if taking a Jupyter notebook and just putting a wrapper around it, like, great, we'll create a rest endpoint. I, I mean, it's that be, because you can do it, should you do it? And, you know, it's, yeah, right? Like, everyone's like, no. It's funny when you start asking, like, in the MLOps community, there's a few very strongly opinionated people who are like, everything should be engineering from the get-go. There, there, there's a few of those. And it's like, well, you've also been in the field for, like, 20, 30 years. So you could probably engineer your way out of the bottom of, like, a tunnel. <laughs> Not everyone can do that. 
<laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's something that we think about a lot. It seems like the production part, that's good. It seems like the experimentation part, people got their pandas, they got their scikit learn, they got their TensorFlow kidding PyTorch, um, you know, open CV, they got that stuff. But it's like when you start bridging, then that's where it's like, oof, that's where people got feelings, very strong feelings. Kosa, uh, hands up, go for it. Yeah, um, uh, I guess like, so in my recent experience, uh, like it's been more about productionizing to robotics. And then in the last six months, more about productionizing to cloud endpoints, right? Now, what I found weirdly is in the robotics space, we don't really use like containerized models that are deployed, right? Because they're not as used to that process, right? So the the idea of engineering your way through that, and had I gone back with what I know now, I would have containerized the model and then deployed it slightly differently, even on board the robot, right? Hosts like a local Docker image with, with a containerized model there. Um, and then call that from your, you know, Ross middleware or whatever that is. So that that whole thing changes based on how much you're absolutely right, how experienced you are as an ML engineer or an ML ops engineer or even as an infra engineer, right? A lot of infrastructure engineers bring a lot of that in-house knowledge on how do you engineer the solution, right? But what I saw there at that company and what I'm seeing here now where I'm at is that these things are all kind of layers on top, right? So you always start with that experimentational thing because if you're starting from the pure, I'm going to engineer the full solution here, um, it's it's you're going to get so clogged up in trying to engineer the perfect solution that you forget that edict of that edict of uh, good is better, like working is better than perfect, right? Um, so being able to layer that on top, that's what makes like that, I think that's what makes a successful company in this case is. Being able to experiment first and then say, okay, now let's wrap that around with a layer of, you know, code maintainability and where unit tests come in just for the peripheral functions to make sure that, you know, as we develop, it's going to continue serving the purpose of the larger code base. Um, and then going through the model deployment process and all of that. So these are all layers that you wrap on top, one on top of the other. Um, and that when you think about it that way, it's it's kind of that the evolutionary cycle of the code base, right? Um, so should you engineer it from the get-go? Probably not. Should you add layers of engineering as early as possible, given what you know? Yeah. Like after you've, depends on whether you're in a proof of concept point or whether you're in a, hey, we need to start like deploying this to production, right? So you've got to like knowing when to make that call, I think is the most powerful part of it is to say, okay, let's start improving it. But one of the big deterrents in all of this is the unit testing and the testing side of it. Now, it's very easy to unit test a single function that does something, right? But then at what point do you say, okay, we've got to keep strong, like cyclic testing with the data in, in, in prod. Like for example, if I'm designing something for a robotics field, how do you even get the, the labeled data for that? Right? Like just to do that at scale is such a mammoth task that if you get caught up in trying to do that, you're never going to have the proof of concept robot in the first place. You're never going to have the, uh, you know, running working prototype in the first place. So you have to kind of wrap that around as you go each pass that you make improves them right um yeah like my i, I used to work in a, in a motorsport like team at university and like our, our principal engine was always like hey guys remember evolution not revolution right so if you're constantly evolving what you designed before it's eventually going to become you know mercedes amg or you know in last year's case red bull interesting so actually so i guess like it kind of makes sense sort of kind of 
Um, totally random question. Uh, do robotics companies like have microservices? Right, that sounds like a really stupid question, and it probably is. But I was thinking about it. I'm like, I've actually only worked in consumer SaaS companies where it's like, yeah, we do have microservices actually. Um, partially because we are kind of spinning up different models and different applications. But I'm curious, do you have that in Roblox or? It depends on the, I guess it depends where the company comes from, right? Like, so now if you, if you look at say, well, anything that Google's doing in robotics, I can almost guarantee that they've got some element of microservices in there. They've got served code through containerized, you know, uh, things like that. So, but whereas like uh, a lot of robotics shops comes from a pure robotics background where most of them aren't actually trained software engineers, but they're designed towards embedded programming. They're designed towards uh, uh, robotic design, which is a very different style of programming. And you're thinking mostly of, it's very similar to using pub sub systems all the time, right? So they're very keen on embedding the model. Like this, I've made this mistake before and I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's like a, almost a development step where I embed the model directly into my node on that. Like it's kind of like a cloud function, right? But it runs on the robot. So I embed the model straight into the code. So for me, uh, deploying the model was updating the, the the PTH file, right? Updating the saved model weights and then just reinitializing the node. That, sorry. So that's why uh, for me, it was like slightly different. So then when I started working with more cloud-based systems and more deployment-based systems, it turned into this thing where I'm like, you know what? If I containerize that as a Docker container, that gives me my dependency management and all my node has to do is then just ping that one local, like instead of pinging like an endpoint that's hosted by GCP, I'd have to ping an endpoint that's in a local Docker container, right? So that's how you kind of keep it on a robot without needing to host, well, they can't see online. I've, I've said this a number of times on this, on this chat is robots don't have internet when they're underwater, for example, right? So like plain and simple, you have to come up with a slightly different solutions to it. Um, so that microservices, that experience with microservices, those traditional uh, software delivery processes is kind of different because they're so much more mentally closer to the hardware. And it's just this perspective shift, right? Um, and it took me a little while to get my head out of that uh, bit of a hole. But I think we can take a lot of these microservice deployment practices back to the robotics field and actually make a huge impact in how well it's done. And I think some of the major software companies that are exploring robotics they have that in-house natural knowledge, right? Your startup robotics companies that are, you know, a couple of guys like me that did robotics at university and want to build something cool, we don't have that knowledge in-house. We kind of have to pick that up as we go. So this is where I've seen that layers of information and knowledge grow on top of it. Um, yeah. I'm wondering for, for the robotics cool. case, like you mentioned deploying just right on the robot itself. Like, is that any different than the... Deployed on, you know, whatever the the models deployed on my watch that is able to pick up what exercise I'm doing, for example, rowing, right? It, or or the model that's on the phone. It's the same kind of concept of of deployment. Well, yes, yes and no. Um, so, yes, in the sense that you could do it that way. There there are a lot of things on your phone that rely on external endpoints that you you know you're relying on an internet connection. <clears throat> but yes, there are absolutely models that are stored on your phone and that run local to your phone. Um, there, there are things that train on your, like federated learning models that train on your individual device itself, right? So you can absolutely apply some of those principles to the robotics field. What we haven't, what, like I said, what we've seen is that kind of thinking comes from companies that have experience deploying on end user wearables and things like that. 
uh, mobile devices and then are transitioning into investigating to robotics. Now, I'm sure if you talk to Apple's robotics research team, they're going to do stuff like that. They're, they're going to naturally have those skills where they can say, hey, our wearables team probably know how to deploy this because they've deployed models in the in the wild, right? Let's do that in the robotics. Now, if you talk to like a Oxbotica or you talk to, you know, um, any of those kinds of companies, it, it's that knowledge has to mature and you have to recognize that that's a problem in the first place in order for that uh, knowledge to mature. So that recognition that, hey, actually, there's an idea out there that can serve us in the robotics world. Um, yeah, that, that's that's kind of what I'm trying to bring together with the communities around me is how does the, like we need to talk more between the data science world, the machine learning world and the robotics world, right? Because we just, there's just this lack of understanding of what's possible out there to deploy, right? Um, and I think you can bring a lot of benefit. Um, yeah, you can probably do it in very much the same way. Um, you will have some differences because the kinds of platforms that you're building robots on, the complication is that they're very often unique. They're very often very custom um, hardware. Uh, like NVIDIA's designed their own custom hardware for running, um, well, what's it called, just for running their autonomous vehicles, right? The whole drive Pegasus systems and all that stuff. They've had to specialize for that space. You see similar stuff with robotics. The only difference is there's this much higher upfront capital investment in robotics, right? Um, that we haven't seen the scale of companies yet uh, because they're not able to consume, like bring it to consumers quite yet. So those are the those are the challenges, right? The sheer cost of it is is not letting people scale enough that they say, hey, we have the uh, we have the uh, bandwidth and the and the maturity to take on some traditional. Uh, software engineers, right, who can help us build this product down. They're kind of forced to that corner where they're like, yes, but shit, we need 10 more, like two more robotics engineers that can, you know, do specifically robotic stuff that a lot of software engineers may not have had any, like, understanding of, right? Um, and, and that space programming for robots is very different and very complicated. And frankly, even though I'm from that space, there's a lot that I don't know about it, right? Um, so it, it's it's one of those things where eventually, as that like the like the um, autonomous vehicle industry, as that industry matures, you're going to see more of that transfer of knowledge from matured industries come into it. And I think the autonomous vehicle industry is the closest to the robotic space. There's a lot of learning to be done between those areas. Mark, go for it. I mean, kind of hard to follow up the awesome robot talk. Um, that was really cool. I want, I want to learn more about this. Uh, I want to kind of go back to Mikiko's question um, and talking about like uh, notebooks, wrappers and stuff like that. And it reminded me of a conversation I had I believe, with Zach Wilson, who's over at Airbnb, but before he worked at Netflix. And um, it was then I was talking to him. I was just learning about microservices and like what that's all about. And what he was describing to me is that microservices make sense for Netflix because of their culture. Their culture is very deeply rooted in being like little mini startups all around. And so they have to use microservices to keep everything in together because talking to other teams is extremely hard. See, there's my hands moving. Um, so, um, so like talking to other teams is extremely difficult. So microservices like facilitate that. But if you saw like their whole system, I think there was like a YouTube video of it describing microservices netflix looks crazy it's like a swarm of information moving across right and so for me like seeing that i'm just like brainstorming making wrappers around notebooks makes sense because their culture is like move fast we're startups it's hard to talk to other people it's way easier just to wrap this 
than to talk to another team across the hall, I guess. Um, and so for me, like what's best practice, um, I guess it's like similar to like what, what data scientist is, is like, it's completely dependent on the culture. There's my hands. I need to turn this off. It's, it's even distracting me. It's um, awesome. Cause it's like that zooming in for like in the, in like, I, like well, I don't do sports, so I'm yeah. assuming, but like in sports, you know, when they're like, they've got like that penalty kick or whatever. It's like, I have mixed feelings. It looks cool, but I lose my train of thought because I have an attention span of a gnat. Um, but just thinking back to is like, I don't know if there will be like necessary best practice. I mean, there may be best practice for like certain aspects, but I feel like your company's culture and I'm just, again, I don't have any de- definitive like proof or anything like this around this or like experience around this, but just brainstorm from experiences and stories I've talked to other people about. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to stop here. <laughs> awesome. Um, thoughts or comments on that? Anyone? Yeah, look, I, I completely agree that what's best practice. It's like, uh, you know, I, so I was re- recently listening to the audiobook of um, software engineering at Google, the O'Reilly one. Um, now I learned a lot from listening to that book, but the biggest takeaway was the number of times they're like, now this might not work for you. We do this because we've got, you know, a bajillion software engineers trying to, you know, search a single giant mono repository at the same time. So we need to optimize that. Like that, the, the entire thing was, this might not work for you. And I think really understanding that is um, pretty critical. So like, it's very tempting as engineers to want to know the answer to how to do something. Like we're expected to know how to build something from scratch, right? Um, so we're expected to follow design patterns. We're expected to know this is the right solution. Um, to be honest, let's be let's be frank. Most of us, if we're trying to do that, we're bullshit artists, right? Like we're really just trying to figure out what works best in that situation. And if you're working in a cutting edge enough field, uh, which frankly most of us are, um, you're going to find that everyone's going to come up with a slightly different solution to it. It's co- exactly why you have at least a half a dozen data linking solutions. You've got at least a, you know, you've got at least four different, four or five different decent machine learning packages out there, right? Like, and you've seen those evolutions. Kara is totally different to Tana, completely different to, you know, PyTorch and TensorFlow. Like, they're just totally different ways of what is best practice for machine learning. I mean, Darknet is another example, right? Um, so what's best practice? It's going to depend on what you're trying to solve at the end of the day. It's a, it's a really, like, it's a cop-out answer, I know, but, like, it's kind of honest. Awesome. Well, Thank you guys so much. Great conversation. Great talk. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. Um, <laughs> any parting thoughts or words from anyone? Do let me know. Uh, Russell's got a lot of good uh, feedback uh, here in the chat. Real trick is convincing people to allow us to fail enough times to create something incredible. And on that, let's go ahead and uh, and wrap this happy hour session up. Thank you guys so much for joining. Um, be sure to check out the episode released today. Scott Taylor, the one and only data whisperer who's getting loud on the podcast. Um, so check that out and a few events next week, speaking at some ODSC thing on a Tuesday, check that out if you can Wednesday, um, uh, comment, happy, happy hours. Yeah, no common office hours. And then data science, happy hours, uh, be on camera a lot this month. She is tiring, uh, but at least got a nice haircut. So guys, thank you so much for joining. Take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Remember you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something? Cheers, everyone.